Welcome everyone to the Immigrants Journey Podcast. I am your host, Carmenetta, and this week we welcome Ronan Stewart, who is a historian, researcher, and archivist living in Dublin. He has completed his honors degree at UCD, finishing a master's in Cambridge, and is finishing a second master's in Wales. He has been reading, studying, and writing articles about history for most of his life, and he has immense knowledge in the field. He has been awarded the Edward Arkins Award in 2010 for excellent history writing and the Marine Wall Book Prize in 2011. And so we are going to pick his brain about Irish history and, of course, about multiculturalism in Ireland, because that's kind of the theme of the podcast. Ronan also has an interest in Middle Eastern history and society. He has traveled to the region to learn Arabic and has some interesting insights into the culture and how it's changed over the years. So we're really looking forward to having a conversation about that as well. Ronan, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, first of all, th thank you very much for having me here. Um, it's, I'm glad to be on your show. Um, so if you, if you have any uh, questions, please. Absolutely. Um, as always, I'd like to get a little bit of background on the guests. So where did you grow up and what was it about history that captivated you and motivated you to make it a lifelong career? Um, yeah, so um, I grew up here in the cap what I think is the capital of the universe, Dublin <laughs> in Ireland. <laughs> and from the time I was a kid, I would read little children's pop-up books on basically everything to do with history, things like ancient Egypt or, the, or Vikings in Ireland or whatever. Um, I was, and it was, it was like being kind of transported to a different world almost. I was, I was surrounded by history growing up. My grandfather, for instance, I uh, was in the British Army and he was actually cap he was actually in the British Army in Singapore. He was later captured by the Japanese, oh, wow. spent three years in a Japanese um prisoner of war camp. And um you know, he talk about it. He he did actually, yeah, um towards towards um, his waning years. Um he actually actually wrote a small piece about it and um kind of just detailed some of his experiences within the camp and eventually is how he was reunited with his with his wife, my grandmother, um, in 1940, late 1945, early 46. And um, it's just this moment when the two are reunited um, after years apart. And it's a, yeah, I, I guess it's um, it's a very, very solemn moment, you know? Um, Absolutely. Two people have never, who haven't seen each other in, in, in the middle of these massive events that are going on around them. Um, so I came back to this interest in my in my twenties after a long absence when I was on, went on a road trip around Europe, and, um, and this I visited places like the ruins of Pompeii and a few other places like the walls of Istanbul. I remember just sitting in the middle of um, of Pompeii's ruins, and it's it's basically in the shadow of Mount, Mount Vesuvius, um, which erupted and basically buried this city under um, about six foot meters of ash um, and around me I've got buildings on either side which are you know well organized they the Romans had their own city councils they had their own um horticulture um they had they had a system of civic government this is just yeah it's just fascinating me and I traveled to in India and China and so and I would go to similar architectural sites um for instance the terracotta warriors in in, in Xi'an this just um yeah this is just something that just really gets my heart pounding and um when you know, did you figure out that you wanted to make this a career 
Um, I always wanted it to be a career, but I mean, making it a, a practical thing has, has always been, is of course always very difficult. Um, the um, Eventually in 2008, I went back as an adult to become a history student in UCD. Um, loved the experience. And um, I, I guess I always wanted to, um, I guess I always wanted to make it something that was practical, something that was useful for people, not just some esoteric sort of interest, yeah. which people can, um, you know, a lot of people think of history, they think of it as this ivory tower sort of, yeah, not very important. It depends how it's communicated. Because exactly. I remember when I was in grade school, I was bored to tears every history class <laughs> until one day we had a substitute teacher and this man made me love it. And I've been interested in history ever since. So I think a lot of times it's how it's presented makes a massive impact. Absolutely. For Absolutely. better or for worse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because it's it's um at the end of the day it's it's one big story. Yeah. And it's it's filled with characters and plots and subplots and it's filled with triumph and tragedy and love and hate and betrayal and acts of kindness and the full mix of human emotion, you know. Um you can, you can get some really um, big questions like, why was Hitler motivated to do, motivated to do what he did? And mm. um, would Britain have actually invaded and destroyed Ireland if she hadn't signed up to the Treaty of 1922? And um, of course, what can we learn from the past? You know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, human beings and human behavioral patterns seem to have a pattern. We tend yeah. to repeat and we mm. tend to do things based on what has done before. And if we don't learn important lessons, we're like, as the cliche goes, repeat yeah. the past. Mm. What do you love most about being a historian? Mm. I guess you can get some golden moments, like when the Choctaw Native American peoples um, donated some money to the uh, to the cause of the Irish famine. Um, yeah, this is this is a story which actually came up big in the newspaper newspapers at the time, and it was recently commemorated in a series of memorials down in Cork. And um, the, these, um, these Choctaw Indians have just been relocated from their, from their uh, land in, um, basically been relocated to Oklahoma in Central America, or Central North America, I should say. So, um, they, uh, they had experienced famine. They knew what it was like. They pieced together some money and they, and, they sent it off to Ireland. These are people who are not wealthy. And That's they'd... amazing. Yeah. What was the Irish connection between themselves? Yeah, um, it seems that and um, they might have gotten it from local Irish settlers. There is a cynical view that perhaps you see the, the person who's actually responsible for moving them from their old ancestral lands out to out of Oklahoma was actually of Irish descent. And it's possible that it was just political. They were just desperately trying to get this guy not to keep not to keep booting them off their land, but um, but it, it seems that it was um, that it was an act of absolute generosity and kindness, and that was that was just it. Um, they seem to have they seem to have gone gone the information from local Irish settlers. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you get those kind of golden moments, and never run out of stories to deconstruct and to argue about, you know, that's because that's what it's all about. That's true, because so much of it, like, all knowledge is about interpretation. I'm straight. Um, exactly. Well, well, theory of gravity, but yes, um, <laughs> most knowledge, most knowledge, most knowledge is, is, yeah. What frustrates you the most about being a historian? Yeah, um, 
I guess the word funding could have answered this and most other questions. Um, yeah, more seriously, um, like most other professions, historians um, usually have to deal with many opinions about their area, which are coming from sources that aren't versed in the profession. I try to comment on anything remotely scientific, like the Large Hydron Collider out in Switzerland, or how to repair a, sl a slurry spreader, a slurry spreader on a John Deere tractor or something like that. Uh, I wouldn't know what I was talking about. Um, people just they they kind of they don't know. I know it sounds a little bit um, kind of Yeah, yeah, yeah. That word. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no. Um, but uh, I'm going back. Um, they just don't know. They 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 can't know about the nuances and complications behind. There are particular subjects. It's kind of society we live in. Yeah, we all have we all have areas pockets of knowledge that we're more or less familiar with. But there's just like too much knowledge in general for anyone to ever develop an expertise in multiple things. Like you literally have to dedicate your life yeah. to it, and yeah. then you still only know a sliver of all that there is to know because knowledge is constantly evolving. So it's exactly. intense. Yeah, exactly. We really rely on one another for yeah. expertise and for judgment and yeah. for honesty and that yeah. can get and for Google. And Google. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, um, we have, um, I, I'd say, um, yeah, if, uh, I mean, the, if, uh, because they haven't studied it for years, they just don't, yeah, they can't know about the complications behind it any more so than I know how to teach an yeah. interpretive dance class. I suppose that's where the real value that the real value in teaching is in being able to make your niche expertise relatable to people that don't have your background knowledge. Yeah, yeah. And that's the real challenge of teaching. Yeah. And the same the same sort of lack of knowledge as well, it drives many issues around the world today, like um, say hardcore European nationalism to hardcore hard left politics to Islamism and so on. Yeah. When Donald Trump says let's make America great again. What, what the hell does he mean by that? Does he mean when was America great? Does he mean military superiority or economic ascendancy? Or does he mean the Clinton era in the 1990s? Apparently, Bill Clinton was one of the actually used this campaign slogan, and um, so did Ronald Reagan. And um, so, I don't know if he means those particular eras. Now, I'm pretty sure it, it doesn't sounds mean the good. Clintons. And that's the thing really when, you're, when you're dealing with people and you're dealing with the populace, moving people on a visceral level. Yeah gets results yeah. so really teasing out the ins and out what does that mean yeah well when was yeah. that's a great question when was america great yeah. in your view yeah. like that that doesn't come into it yeah. it, it sounds good it, it seems human psychology is actually rotate rotates around um we actually respond much better to an appeal to some, something that is lost rather than gaining something if if it's perceived that we've lost something i don't know if somebody tells you you've just lost a jumper then you're going to feel it's my jumper. I want yeah. it back. I want my jumper back. But if they say, "Well, you can gain a jumper," and you'd be like, Pfft. "I have jumpers. I've got jumpers." Yeah. yeah. Well, it doesn't matter, you know. Um, unless it's an amazing type of jumper, or whatever. <laughs> but it's but yeah. And generally, yeah, it's it's and yeah, that's that's a big problem with historians. What is your favorite part of Irish history, and why? Mm. Okay, Irish history. Um, yeah, well, I guess I, I guess I prepared the medieval stuff because it, it was the same country, it's a very different. I love good medieval battle on the Game of Thrones after all. Half the series comes from here, it's based on events in Irish, in Irish history, like the killing of Shane O'Neill, just the actual the original Red Wedding. Mm. 
And um, we've, we've really got lessons to learn from all periods. The Irish Revolution from 1916 to 23 was important because rather than the whole thing turning into an absolute bloodbath, an extended kind of thing for entire generations, it was relatively bloodless if we put it in the context of what was going on in the rest of Europe or the world, um, where there were huge massacres of ethnic minorities, large-scale brutal conventional wars in Poland, India, for instance. There was the horror of the civil war, a whole family being torn apart against each other and executions and so on, but ultimately it ended. Um, and you contrast the, this with the like of many sub-Saharan African nations, which are still having conflicts going on there from 50 years ago. It's, um, it's yeah, it's, it's something to learn in terms of moderation. It's not a perfect lesson, but it's, uh, but, yeah. What did the Irish do that other nations seem to be missing in terms of reducing yeah. the bloodshed. Um, okay, I have a I have a bit of a theory in that there were very strong institutions already in place. Um, we already had a substantial middle class. Most of the people who led the revolution mm. were very well educated um, people, and they generally weren't um, particularly bloodthirsty. The ideology which drove them was not especially was not especially bloodthirsty. Uh, if you look at the proclamation of Irish independence, it is a very inclusive document, whatever, whatever else people might say about Irish nationalism. Um, also, there was, there was a very strong system of local government and continuity. I work um, in local government archives, and um, it's evidence that even while the rising was going, even while the civil war was going on, even while this constant black and tans raids raging, raging up and, through the, and down the county, these governments are still working, still kind of, kind of uh, maintaining local streets, still keeping um, keeping uh, lights turned on, keeping local transport going, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's that continuity that keeps the country going. What do you think enabled them, both in ability and in willingness, to keep that level of continuity and civility in the midst of chaos? Why didn't it all go to tits up? Well. The way we tend to remember the Irish Revolution is that, you know, it was a much that it was it affected everybody, which it did. But at day's end, not actually that many people were actually involved in it. And if you actually, I, I look at some of the minute books that I'm dealing with. They talk about events that are happening in Dublin. It's it's close by, but at day's end, it's not actually happening in Dunleary. Mm. It's not actually. It's only a very small percentage of the population were actually involved in most of these events. Of course, later on, people will, will, of course, talk about, oh, my grandfather was involved, oh, this. My family wasn't involved. My family basically stay, stayed on the sidelines like the vast majority of families in Ireland um, because it was just easier to do it that way. Um, the, um, they also, they already had a really good system in place. It wasn't, it, they, they had already had a system of local governments. They already had and a reasonably good infrastructure so they could afford to take a few hits and come back from that. Um, and they were they were hard hits, there's no, there's no denying that, but they could come back from it. And it didn't set up. And while there were cycles of violence set up, they weren't um they weren't as bad as in a lot of other places, I'd say. Very interesting. Um yeah. So the patterns and implications of fear regarding immigration. Yeah. Fast forward yeah, time please. a little bit more. Because <laughs> like at that time, 1922, we didn't have much uh, involvement with 
people immigrating here compared to now. Yeah. Is that fair? Um, there were issues with Belgian migrants, but um, but there so, always is. Yeah, but what, generally no. There wasn't the influx of immigration no. back no. then as no. there is here. Yeah. Um. So, like in the present, uh, I was reading one of the articles that I found in your website, which I thought was really interesting, where you draw parallels between um, Ireland and um, other countries. And I have your quote here. It says major concerns included Belgian refugees fleeing the First World War, and especially which class of refugee would be housed in the upper class. And we kind of have the situation yeah. now with the influx of refugees yeah. and how different types of immigrants are viewed and treated differently in society. Yeah. Do you think that Ireland is getting better in terms of their treatment of immigrants? Or do you think we're just in a situation that we've never encountered before, mm. so we're still finding our feet? Because like from a sympathetic or empathetic perspective, the Irish have been in the position mm. of many people who are coming here, mm. where Ireland was in dire straits and people just had to emigrate. Yeah. There was nothing here but famine. And yeah. so from a historical perspective, there could be a lot of sympathy, but sometimes when people feel like they don't have enough, they get yeah. protective and fearful and they don't see that side of it. Um. Sorry, I said a lot of these. Yeah, um, let me try to, to work through that. Um, yeah, um, okay, yeah, basically um, the Belgian refugees did, did um, come to Ireland, there's about 3,000 of them. And um, for the most part, they were very much welcomed. That's what seems to have, to have happened. And um, they were most, many of them were housed in Shotland and some other in Clones or Clones. Um, there's not that many in Dublin for some reason. Um, the, um, it would seem that after, by about November of 1914, there were some complaints about, you know, why are we, why are we housing these people? You know, our men are out there dying on the battlefield. It's a, it's a somewhat different kind of situation from, from, from now. So, so far, what my research has indicated is that they were actually quite well welcomed. And the Belgians themselves um, generally um, felt, felt that they'd been well done by. Um, bear in mind, this is a very... Very different situation. Yeah. Um, Apples and oranges. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the look, the the local government that uh, that files that I was quoting from there from was up in was based once again in Dunleary, and they weren't. Um, they, they were representing local merchants and landowners, one sorts or another. They were the upper classes essentially, well, mid to upper classes, and they were they were very very concerned. With the class of refugees now, it seems that it mattered more to them. The in this particular context, class mattered more to them than the fact that they were Catholic or Protestant. And mm. um, at the time, it, one of the big debates around the around the um, Belgian refugees was whether they were going to be Catholic or Protestant. Um, but um, it seems that the guys in Dunleary go one better and actually decide to to throw on another layer there. Um, what are the similarities? Yeah, I, I think um, it's obviously a very charged, they're both quite charged environments. Um, I personally feel that they seem to, overall, the, there, there seems to have been a somewhat better handling of the situation back then, at least in terms of, uh, in terms of um, the actual welcome they received. But we're, we're seeing a lot of the same trends. We're seeing hostile media coverage in certain, 
very specific instances. There is, of course, occasional hostile media coverage of immigrants coming to Ireland. There's no secret about the fact that, that issues like direct provision can become greatly to the fore, or the fact of lengthy waiting times to gain, to gain citizenship or even just work in this country. It seems that the Belgians um, were fast-tracked at the time for whatever reason, at least to, to get work. They weren't given citizenship within the British Empire that I know of, but... Um, I don't believe that there has been a you can really try a continuity between the Belgian refugees and now. Uh, too much has changed. Too much has changed. And um, Ireland is, was a very poor country in the twenties, thirties, and forties. We have had a very small number of Muslim immigrants in the nineteen fifties, um, but that was mainly those were mainly um, doctoral students who were brought over. Um, actually, um, they were actually brought brought over from places like Egypt and uh, South Africa. I actually happened to. Come across one of them when I was in Egypt and actually sorted out a head cold. I had there is it's really good actually, but yeah. Um, and is there is there a continuity? Um, I think I think Ireland is a, in, in regards to immigration. We are a bit of a special case. We're a little bit different from some of the other countries. We haven't colonized anyone. Yeah, that's that's a really big advantage. And um, I think because it, it it gets us away from cycles of hatred Absolutely. that might have existed before. No, I totally agree with that. Mm. Now, as mentioned earlier, one of your areas of interest and expertise is Islamic culture. Mm. So let's transition a little bit and discuss Islamic culture sure. in the Middle Eastern countries versus in Western countries, how mm. it's practiced and how it's lived. Sure, yeah. Um, why? Wow. Um, well, let's start in, in, in the Middle East. Um, around 200 years ago, Europeans started colonizing different parts of the Muslim world. They brought with them ideas like heavy industry and the Enlightenment, which is, of course, really anti-religion. They steadily, steadily conquered most of the Islamic world. Ever since then, Muslims um, have been caught in a double bind. They've gained independence, but they, have, they still have to decide whether they want to essentially copy all, the, uh, all of the West's ideas for governance, ranging from democracy to its interpretations of women's rights to modern technology, and in essence, becoming a pale reflection of the West, so Nasser's nationalist Egypt or Jinnah's Pakistan, as many Islamists would see it. And these were not particularly successful states. I'm really abbreviating a lot of stuff here. Or do they try to stick to, the, to their own beliefs, focusing on the Quran, the Hadith, the sayings of the Prophet, even if recent examples of Islamic states ranging from the Sakota Caliphate to more modern sort of Boko Haram or ISIS have been kind of a train wreck? Or do they go to something in between? their hearts and their heads in, in some respects. And um, in recent years, thanks to the failures of secular nationalist regimes, there's been an, an Islamic revival occurring uh, pretty much since the 1970s. This has involved a culture of Islam essentially entering into every facet of life, or at least it reviving itself as it once was. This is somewhat similar to revival movements like the Catholic Church in Ireland in the 19th century or evangelism in the United States, only on a vastly larger scale. You can see this in women who are actively choosing to wear the hijab more than they did in the past. Younger people are forming Islamic societies across university campuses. Uh, halal or Islamically approved banking and food are growing sectors across the Muslim world. And we have Islamist politicians like Erdogan Erdic in Turkey or the, the banned uh, Muslim Brotherhood parties in Egypt or many local Islam Islamic groups in Turkey and other. Um, one strand of this movement is heavily tinged with Salafism coming from the Gulf states, especially 
Saudi Arabia. And these states have been making vast quantities of oil money. They're using that money to fund educational programs and new mosques all over the world, teaching their interpretation of Islam as a way to prop up their regime's legitimacy. So we're, that's how um, some of this comes to Europe. Um, the Western European or Western Muslim communities are, of course, very important in all of this. Um, Do you think they modify some of the more traditional or orthodox views of Muslims coming from Islamic countries? As, as a general rule, um, it seems, um, the surveys that I've seen seem to indicate that, they, that their views tend to be roughly, on average, and of course they exist in a spectrum, roughly on average between ours and the Middle East in terms of things like interpretation of women's rights and also support for terrorism or whatever. Um, but but um, it seems that Muslims are really, the, the idea that Muslims don't want to integrate, it's, it's kind of a myth. They, um, in many cases, they really do want to integrate. But I'll, I'll explain that a little bit more in a minute. But, sure. um, yeah, um, the um, I guess many of them eventually do form. They want to form alliances with local groups, depending on their interest, on their interest, be it left or right wing. And many Muslims secretly become the equivalent of Christian of Christmas Christians, only observing the most necessary parts of Islam, like Eid, and then kind of just the rest of the year they kind of just. Now, this is not to state that many um, do, many don't go to the mosque, because obviously many do, but it's it's complicated and it varies from situation to situation. The current population in Ireland is um, it's rather different than England or Europe, and um, where there's often one Mus often Muslims of one particular group predominating from a colonial past, and um, the Irish um, the Irish Muslim community is extremely varied, with no one group predominating. We have very large numbers of Arabs, South Asian Muslims from Pakistan or India, some from sub-Saharan African countries like Nigeria, and of course Malaysia and Indonesia. Um, they tend to be better educated than the national average in Ireland. And uh, this is reflected in local mosques all around Dublin, for instance, with a sunny mosque funded by the Maktoum Foundation out in Flonsky and subsist substantially influenced by the Muslim Brotherhood, or it has been in the past. There's a more Sufi mosque out in the South Circular Road and also out in Manchestown. We have a Shia mosque um, based out in Klonsky. Um, many Muslims are not permanent settlers in Dublin, but instead are students in UCD Trinity or right here in DCU. Yeah. And um, especially medical or engineering students, it's kind of a cliche. But uh, generally speaking, i got to say the relationship between Muslims and Ireland, it's, it's just so much more easy than in most other countries. There'd be no serious incidents. Exactly. I think you earlier you, you earlier asked me, you know, what was there sympathy for Ireland for foreign people fleeing from war zones? I think there is. I have to say though, in practice, the Irish government has not really taken up um has not performed particularly well here. We've only actually taken in you know, I think at most a few hundred to a couple of thousand actual refugees from Syria. We could afford to take in quite a lot more. And um, that's um, so that's that's one big uh, big issue I have to say. Um, we also have issues around. Um, there, there have been some assaults against members of the Muslim community and some harassment. 
I haven't been able to get a clear picture of what the exact picture of that is, but it does occur. And um, it does appear to be uh, an issue of bone of contention. So far, there's been no major incidents, no major terrorist attacks. So tough yeah, wood. Absolutely. And, um, yeah. What is your opinion about the future of multiculturalism in Ireland? Oh, um, easy kind of questions. Um, yeah, overall, the overall, as I said, the notion that Muslims don't assimilate, it's not really true. They are assimilating just really slowly and quietly. Surveys indicate that after the first couple of years, as I said, Muslims who come here tend to go to the mosques less, less often and slowly have less and less interest in Islam. Generally, though, their social views are so, usually somewhere between those in the West and the Muslim world, which is not necessarily totally unusual, by the way, for immigrant communities. As regards multiculturalism as itself, I'm on the fence. We tend to use a different system here from the one used in Britain, which essentially has a highly decentralized approach to new communities. The one in France, which is really centralized with its Burkaban, which insists um, that there has to be. A lot of the failures of different systems to integrate Muslims, in, in my opinion, it really has more to do with the international actions of the United States and Britain. Mm. After all, if America invaded Ireland, could we really expect well, could we really expect the Irish American community to totally stay loyal to America? No. No. Because they would feel they would feel that they'd have to be in some way loyal to their home country, even if culturally they weren't really that yeah. part of the home community anymore. I'd be I've met I've I've um, talked a lot with members of the Irish American community, and I have to say there is a very big cultural difference there. And all they're basically more American than they are Irish now, in my opinion, well, whatever. Yeah. Um, for the last 50 years or so, the, Euro the US has been interfering with the Islamic world politically, funding coups which destroyed democratic movements in countries like Syria and Iran, and also inflicting a savage set of sanctions and bombings that Iraq through the 1990s. And I've got to say, in that context, um, you know, more general anger within the Muslim community, it does have a logical reason. They're not angry or feeling ostracized for no particular reason, okay? They're not just doing it because, oh, they're crazy people. They have very logical reasons for feeling upset about the wider community. There's one more point. I mean, we, we really shouldn't ignore the fact that Westerners are quietly ostracizing Muslims on an interpersonal level, especially in countries like Britain and right here in Ireland. And this happens, it usually happens very silently. It's not something you're going to see to your face. But I've been to enough interfaith, interfaith events to know that Muslims almost invariably sit at their own tables, Westerners at their own. Yeah. They may discuss issues of mutual interest, but friendships are much harder to come by. Um, I wonder, because like in DCU here, we have a vast international community of students, but you do see self-imposed segregation, yeah. where the African students sit with the African students, yeah. the Asian students sit with the Asian students, so on and so forth. People yes. feel, and it's kind of funny because like my final year project was on international students' experience integrating yeah. into Irish society. And a lot of what came back in the response was, it feels more comfortable to be yeah. amongst your own. So unless the host community reaches out, <clears throat> people are shy about inserting themselves into the new community. Yeah. Um, 
to be I've in my opinion I I mean I have to say I've I've seen I have seen issue um I've seen um ostracization however play out in places of work and yeah. at times it's really shameful. I, I agree though that there's there is a lot of self segregation. It's it's quite that's let's face it, we are human and we're we we can't force people to get on with each other. We can, of course, hold um, integration events and that can happen. But um, I do think cultural attitudes and differences may need to change on both sides before things happen. Islamophobia is a thing. There are, there's attitudes in Western media. The Muslim community, which I mean, is extensively documented and which needs to be carefully examined. But that said, I also think the Muslim communities themselves have a responsibility to also look at their actions and some of their cultural mores in a responsible way. And it, it does, like, like you say yourself, Carmen, it, it takes, um, it, you know, it takes a big leap for somebody to sit down next to somebody who's really, who they may think of, them, of as rather different from themselves and really try to form a conversation, try to form a bond. Now, that is, that's not easy. And it's, it's getting outside of one's comfort zone. Um, in my opinion, Westerners similarly also have to weigh up their own society and what it has to offer, and what and what allowances we're prepared to make. You know, I don't I don't think Westerners um, should make all the allowances. I don't I don't don't think that's that's really fair. Um, I don't think Muslims should make all the allowances either. I don't. I think um, it's going to be a case by case um, discussion, which is probably going to take out a take. Ages. To, yeah, <laughs> ages. Um, and how are you, how how we carry a balanced and respectful debate and discussion over hot button issues like women's rights and violence? And, you know, this is not going to go go down easily. You know, but I think you really hit the head and nail there. Respectful debate, respectful yeah. conversations, yeah. and a lot of times people are very emotional about these things yeah. with you know valid reasons fair enough but you don't really get anywhere and you don't yeah. tend to listen to the oh. other when emotions are high yeah. don't get me started it's it's um i gotta i gotta say um i've been to many of the sharia law debates for instance up in ucd and I think that's a problem. Framing it as a debate, it yeah. shouldn't be framed as a debate. It should be a conversation. Mm. You should have something that I've seen, and it's been super popular in YouTube over the last several years. Is you get um, public intellectuals from the left and the right mm. having a conversation rather than debates mm. on public issues, like right. Jordan B. Peterson versus Sam Harrison. I don't yeah. know if somebody with these two, but anyway, these kinds of things are a lot more informative mm. and civilized and mm. emotionally measured. And I think the audience gets a lot more out of it. And mm. it would be lovely to see that yeah. in universities. Conversation mm. rather than debates from individuals that Absolutely. have opposing views. I've seen, um, I've seen, for instance, there was a very, very interesting discussion about the Irish Broadcasting Authority and how it should carry, this was a few years ago, but... The, it was a really interesting discussion about how Irish broadcasters should um, handle issues to do with the Islamic world. Um, should they sit, come down and censor things that particularly criticise the Muslim world, or should they let people have open discussions about this? Now, there wasn't necessarily a huge amount. There was disagreement in some areas, agreement in others, um, but it was it was respectful, it was measured. You know, that's a, to my mind, that's a model for how, how we should kind of Kind of um, carry this out. Very diverse kind of conversation, not just 
standard engineers and doctors in the Muslim community, but also a whole range of voices. Um, I, I have to say, um, there are some, I think there are, there may be long-term underlying issues that these two particular cultures in the latter clash on. Um, I hate to say it, some of it may be down to sexuality, um, which is, um, of course, it's, a, it's always going to be a difficult area. Um, but to be fair, we do have a lot to learn from each other. Um, I think the Muslim hapa or coffee culture is just as good as any pub. And I speak as a man who loves a good point, but I gotta say, Islamic banned alcohol, uh, they might be going, they might, might, might just be onto something there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, I just said that on air, did I? You know, um, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, being Irish would be tempting to think that, especially because we do nationally have a yeah. issue with the old booze. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> although, although actually our rate, uh, European-wise, is we're actually doing all right. If you actually look at it, look at the rate, only seventh worst in Europe. So you know, oh. we're going, we're going places. I, I, I know the Poles and the Russians beat us. Who else beats us? Uh, by the Russia, and uh, yeah, I think Ukraine as well, and possibly, I think, is it Latvia or Lithuania? The Eastern Bloc, they're hardcore. Exactly. <laughs> they're very, very hardcore. Vodka, dude, vodka. Yeah, that's so, uh, yeah, I just dream. can't, I cannot, you know. Um, I think, um, I think uh, there, there, is, there is basic issues of sexuality, which are, which are um, just to wrap that one up. Um, for instance, um, Muslim men are allowed to in, are allowed in the faith to marry out, at least to the people of the book, that's Christians and Jews, but Muslim women are not. Muslim women can only ever marry uh, Muslim men, usually from their own community, be it Pakistani or Arab or whatever. Um, the result is that Western men generally feel threatened by this in influx of young men. There's a good deal of tension sparked by sexual rivalry, especially in places like East Germany. I don't think that's necessarily unreasonable, i got to say, but um, especially considering there is currently a marriage crisis among West, many Western Muslim communities because m many Muslim women are often unable to find partners. They're essentially limited to about 3% of the population. And um, if they marry out, the com community will often ostracise them or even expose them to violence. Um, in Britain, there was something like 2,800 2800 other crimes reported in 2010, though. To be fair, a lot of those were not actually from the Muslim community, just to be very clear about that. Obviously, the solution would be simply to let the women date out for at least another generation away from that. And once again, you know, you can't you can't make people change their beliefs. Yeah. And you know, that's that's a basic part of the democratic system. And even if it's a not particularly smart um part of that culture, in my opinion, yeah. it doesn't necessarily mean you can, you know, can't we can't impose a pressure then. Into, into doing that. That's just my particular thing. They have uh, to do towards alcohol, which is a fair point as well. So Well, I think history has definitely shown that you can't force human beings to do anything. No. You have to persuade. Yeah. That's the only thing that really works in the long term. And I think that's why a lot of people's religiosity gets watered down when they're in a new culture, because they're not under so much pressure to conform Absolutely. to what they had to conform to before, yeah. to their own devices. I, I have to say, I've, I've um, heard stories of women coming from Saudi Arabia and um, immediately proceeding to um, get very, very um, plastered when uh, when um, they get off the, the flight, either, either in Lebanon or any part of Western Europe. Um, I don't know how representative that is though. Well, that's, that's normal. It's like the Christian kid that grows up with the pastor father, and then they go off the rails and drugs and everything else because, like, your society or your family has 
trying to restrict you so much that when you have that bit of freedom, you don't know how to handle it with any kind of balance. You just go off the rails for a little bit. And so you're like, well, that's too much. No, I don't like this. (laughs) (laughs) What advice would you give to a young aspiring historian? Okay, I don't want to leave this on a sour note, but as a general rule, the current history courses on offer in UCD and Trinity aren't really designed to get the students jobs. Um, even despite years of economic recession, they basically teach glorified essay writing skills when you get right down to it. Don't do a master's or PhD in history. There's simply too much competition and, and it's unlikely it'll ever yield a worthwhile job because the market is currently at saturation point. I know that's a nasty thing to say. But no, but it's good to tell the truth. Um, there's too many, bro- to be blunt, there's just too many bright, hardworking, enthusiastic history graduates some really, really smart people out there. And there's just too few lecturing positions and almost no research positions. What you need to get is a practical course in something like museum management, or archives or archaeology, which are close by, close to history, in which you can still kind of... Um, Doubt it. Exactly, exactly. And eventually move yourself towards it. But, um, but yeah, no, I think it's... You can, you can get a career in history or history-related topic. It's just going to have to go a bit indirectly, you know. I replied. Exactly. No, that's fantastic, Ronan. Thank you so much for taking some time and joining us today. You can find more about Ronan on this website, RonanStewartServices.com. And you can also follow him on Twitter at R-O-Z-Q-U-E-N-119. That's Rosquin 119 And join us next Saturday for a brand new story. And if you think you're moving to Ireland, check out our partners at Moving to Ireland with all the latest news and updates on what's happening in the Emerald Isle. And that is movingthenumber2ireland.com. And don't forget to like us on Facebook and share your favorite episodes and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. Until the next journey, ciao.